This is Transistor.fm. Code Fun Podcast Network. Hey, Ron. How's it going? That's going pretty good. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm doing pretty good. Nate couldn't join us today. And Ron and I were joking prior to the episode that it was because we're talking about testing. <laughs> but he's going to miss a good one. I think this is going to be a great topic. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Today on the show, we have Jason Sweat. And Hello. Jason is the host of the Rails with Jason podcast and author of Rails Testing for Beginners. Through books, blogs, videos, and courses, Jason helps Rails developers get better at writing tests. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I don't know if I've told you this, Ron, but Jason actually introduced me to podcasting. He had a show a while back called Rails Testing. Was it the Rails Testing Podcast, something like that, or Ruby Testing Podcast? Well, I did a bad job at naming it. It was called the Ruby Testing Podcast. Maybe I should have called it the Rails Testing Podcast. But yeah, I had a Ruby slash Rails focused podcast for a while. All right. So I messaged Jason at some point and asked him if he'd be willing to answer some beginner questions. And he let me come onto the show. And that was the first podcast I was ever on. And it's kind of gotten out of control from there. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Glad to know you got him on this path. Now he's a junkie. Yeah, that was great. I didn't really put it together that that was kind of your arc into podcasting, but I'm happy that I could kind of play a, a role there. But it was great to have you come on the show and like ask me questions. I never had anybody do that before or since. And I wish people would do that more because it's great to hear that like the voice of somebody who has more beginner questions or whatever. So that was great. I'm, I'm happy you did that. And then I'm happy that it led to a podcast of your own. Yeah. So today, as per Jason's brand, we're going to be talking about Rails testing and maybe get into a little bit of TDD. So Jason, is there something you'd like to start with? Well, I guess I'll just start by repeating something I said pre-show to contextualize the conversation, which is I was thinking that today we could talk mainly in, in a way that is beginner-friendly and speaks to people who maybe have very little or no testing experience because there's a lot more people who have little testing experience and there are people who have a lot of testing experience. So I guess I, guess I just say that so that if you're listening and you're afraid that you, might, that you might get lost because we start talking about a bunch of testing jargon, don't worry, because we'll try to start from a gentle testing intro. So the few things that I brought up is maybe things to touch on are like, what's the basic tooling of Rails testing? And like, what do each of those tools do? Because you have RSpec and Minitest and Capybara and FactoryBot, Faker, VCR, WebMock, all these different things. And so it's like, what are all these things? What's their purpose? Which ones do you need to use and which ones don't you need to use? So that's one thing. And then another big question that people always ask is like, what kinds of tests should I write? And what kinds of tests do I not have to write, if any? So there's, at least in our spec, there's system specs, model specs, view specs, routing specs, request specs, 
all these different kinds of specs. And it's like, what should I do first? Do I need to do all these? And if not, why not those ones? That kind of stuff. So maybe we can get into that. And then my third point is when to do test-driven development and when to not do test-driven development. Yeah. So I will say that I still consider myself to be a testing noob. So I will make sure to call out anything that needs a little bit more explanation. But yeah, let's start with the basic tooling of Rails tests. So when you spin up a new Rails app and you're getting ready to start writing some tests, what what do you start reaching for? What kind of gems and what are the purposes of those gems? Well, the very first thing, even maybe before gems and stuff like that, is the RSpec versus mini test question, which uh-huh. <laughs> the three of us were talking about pre-show. So in my writings and all my other material, I tend to focus on RSpec just because that's, that's what I have most experience with and it's what people are most likely to encounter in the wild. But it's been my experience that most commercial projects use RSpec and most open source projects use Minitest. I don't know why that is, but that's been kind of the pattern. And so if you make the decision, not even based on the technical merit of either of those two frameworks, but just make a like career choice, RSpec is, in my opinion, a safer bet because it's what you're much more likely to encounter in a job than Minitest. Why do you think that is? I have no idea. (laughs) I was going to say that it may have something to do with the accessibility of the various frameworks. If you're writing in Ruby, you have access to Minitest while, you know, you have to actually put forth a little bit of effort to be able to access RSpec as your testing suite. And so it may just be a matter of, hey, it's easier. And because we want a lot of people to maybe eventually contribute to our open source project, we're going to lower the barrier to entry or you know lower our dependencies, maybe something like that. Yeah, for me, I, I have no idea... What I know is that now it's probably a self-perpetuating thing. Our spec is popular because it's popular. And I don't know if, if that will change. I, I don't know how it got that way originally. I just know that that's the way it is now. Right. Yeah. It kind of seems like the go-to, whether you know why it's the go-to or not, it's just what people use. Before we go too much more into the, the tools, I did want to ask, so we're going to discuss tools, but if I have a lot of tools, why should I use them? In the interest of, you know, kind of starting at the beginning, can we talk a little bit about why testing is important? You spend a lot of time teaching people about testing. So obviously testing is important to you, but not everybody tests, right? So why, why do you feel that testing is important? Well, everything eventually gets tested one way or another. The best case is that, let's say you have a bug. The best case is that that bug gets caught by an automated test 10 seconds after you introduce the bug. The next best case is that you catch your own bug via manual testing by clicking around in your application. The, the next best thing is like maybe your boss finds the bug. And, and as we go down this path, like, it keeps getting more expensive and more embarrassing. 
So it's better if you find it a little bit worse, if your boss finds it and then has to tell you and then you fix it. Even worse than that is if an end user finds the bug when it's already in production. And so like by skipping automated tests, it doesn't mean that the testing isn't happening. It just means that the testing is being done a different way and by a different person and for a much different cost, a much higher cost. And so that's, that's one way to put it. Another way is like, I specifically am just an extremely lazy person and you cannot, I, I don't want to go through the process every time I change my application of going back through and manually testing everything. Like I'm just not going to do that. So rather than doing that, I much prefer having an automated test suite that does all that stuff for me. Cool. Yeah. Makes sense. And amen. <laughs> I agree with that. Okay. So oh, yeah. uh, back to your tooling before I rudely interrupted. Yeah. No, that's a, a really good clarification though, because before we jump right into here's how you do it, obviously good to, to explain why you even want to do this stuff in the first place. So yeah, tooling, RSpec versus mini test. Let's say you just have made the decision of, of RSpec like I have. There's a number of different kinds of tests you can write. And I'm going to jump around a little bit because it's, it's a little bit hard to explain it linearly. But some tests target just the model layer. Some tests only target controllers. Some tests target views. And there's a question of which kind of test do I start with? If I've never written a test in my life, what would be a good thing for me to start with? And I think... A lot of these kinds of tests can maybe seem a little bit abstract to a beginner. Like if I write a test for a method on one of my models, I can see the test, I can write the test, but I might finish it and say, what exactly did I accomplish with this? Why did I write this kind of test? It's a little bit abstract. So what I prefer to teach people first is integration tests or acceptance tests or whatever term you want to use using Capybara. So tests that use Capybara, and in our spec, we would be talking about system specs. But tests that use Capybara simulate a human testing the application manually. So I like going there first because it's easy to imagine, like if you're going to sit down and manually test, for example, a sign-in feature, what are the steps to that? Well, step one, I'd visit the URL for the sign-in page. Step two, I'd fill in a valid email address and password. Step three, I would click submit. And then step four, I would look for some indication on the screen that my sign-in attempt was successful. So you can think of those four steps listed out. And you can think about a human following those steps. Well, to write a Capybara test, all you have to do is take those four steps and translate them into code. And I say all you have to do, I, I realize that that might not be straightforward and simple for somebody who's never done it before, but it has the benefit of being concrete. I can understand what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. So that's why I like to start there. One thing that I've found with Capybara tests and in Rails or in many tests, they would be called system tests. So system spec, system tests, basically they're pretty close. Hopefully that connection is easy to make, but one thing I found with 
using capybara and maybe selenium or cuprite or ferrum or whatever, it, whichever one it is, is they tend to sometimes break, but not because your actual like test scenario is breaking, but like there's issues with capybara, like getting it running, maybe getting it running in your CI requires a certain level of pain <laughs> or getting it running on Windows and so I've experienced a lot of issues and with caching. I've also experienced a lot of issues with that. It's interesting that you like to start there because to me, like the capybara tests are typically just because of how painful they are to keep running and to keep working in every environment. They, they are not my first choice typically. Well, thank you for opening those three giant cans of worms. Cause those are, <laughs> uh, those, yeah, those are genuinely tricky issues. Luckily, like in my experience, those issues only start to emerge like once you have a somewhat substantial test suite with like non-trivial functionality. When you just have like the hello world level stuff, usually those kinds of things don't come into the picture. But those are really good things that you brought up. And hopefully, hopefully we can get into those because like, let's say you mentioned caching and like, what were the other couple things you mentioned? Running in different environments, like uh, Windows, for instance, I just found this out. Windows doesn't have a really a great ability to run Chrome headless tests. So caching, working in different environments, and then like getting them running in CI, just like getting them running in Docker too, like trying to figure out all the correct packages you need to run them correctly is just oh, kind yeah. of painful. Yeah. Yeah, those things are genuinely challenging things. Luckily, a lot of that stuff you can kind of like ignore when you're getting started. Because another, another one of my beliefs when you're getting started with testing is that you're, you're embarking on two endeavors. One is the reason you're learning testing is probably because you need to write real tests for some actual production code somewhere. So one of your goals is to actually write real tests. But the other thing that you're doing at the same time is you're going through the process of learning testing. And so I advocate separating those two things. And like, like say that you want to learn testing for your job. I would suggest set your production project aside for a minute. Go start a fresh project that's just a throwaway project that only exists for the purpose of teaching yourself testing. And go and build some testing skills there. Then once you're armed with a little bit of skills there, bring that knowledge back to your production project and apply your skill to, to writing some tests there. It's probably going to take quite a long time before you get the hang of it and can write tests that are actually valuable. But a mistake that I see people making sometimes is they don't make that discernment that they're, that they're embarking on two very difficult things, which again are creating real tests for production code, and then learning testing itself. Both those things are really hard. And if you try to mix those two without realizing that you're even mixing those two, that makes for a really difficult time. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, we talk about testing a lot in the Rails community. I think it's something that we view as important, but I haven't seen it often split into like, okay, testing is really hard and it's going to take a lot of practice to get up and running with it. But you should you should like kind of draw a line between I need to learn how to write good tests and then I need to learn how to write this specific test for my production application. Yeah. Yeah. Like you wouldn't expect somebody who's never coded before 
to sit down and learn programming and write a real production application at the same time, you know, but yet a lot of people seem to expect that they can do that with testing, which is not the case. Cause again, it is really hard. So I guess yep. I'll take a step back and explain what Capybara is. And even before that, Andrew, you had mentioned system specs and system tests. And I kind of don't want to because it's annoying, but I think for the benefit of the listener, we should get into these terminology issues because one of the biggest challenges or one of the bigger challenges in learning testing is just wading through all this terminology. Okay. So system spec versus system test. System spec is an R spec term and system test is a mini test term. System tests are uh, something that comes with Rails. It was introduced, I believe, with Rails 5.1. And then R spec system specs are a wrapper on top of system tests. And both these things are the kind of test that actually spins up a browser and manipulates the browser. It simulates the user typing keystrokes and clicking on things to make sure that your whole entire application works together as opposed to the kind of test that just like might test a single method in a model or something like that. Is that kind of consistent with how you guys look at it? Yeah. 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 Okay, and maybe we can get more into other terminology, but I feel like I feel like we can't say system spec and system test without clarifying which is which. So I'm talking only about system specs right now. Okay, so we're writing system specs and we're using Capybara with those system specs. Capybara itself is the tool that allows us to perform those simulations of the user actions. So for example, let's go back to my example of, of filling out a sign-in form. You have a Capybara method. Let's say I want to visit the path of user underscore sign underscore in underscore path. In Capybara, I would call a visit method. I would just type visit space user sign-in path or whatever my path is named. And in the browser that has been spun up by my system spec, Capybara would then visit that URL for me. Then as the next step, let's say I want to fill in the email address. I would say fill underscore in. Again, that's a Capybara method that I'm using. Fill underscore in. And then as the first argument, I would give some identifier for that email field. Maybe that identifier is, is the label that's associated with that field or maybe it's the CSS ID of that field. I would give Capybara something to know which field we're targeting. And then we would give that method another argument that says what we want to put in the field, in this case, the email address. So I could give more examples of what those Capybara methods are, but Capybara provides all of these ways of interacting with the, the page. And so that's what Capybara does. And you can get by with just RSpec and Capybara. Again, if you're just doing like hello world level stuff, you can get by with just those two and write quite a number of tests. But pretty soon, you're going to run into some pain. Because let's say you're not writing... Well, let, let's say you're even writing this test for user sign-in. What needs to exist in order for you to be able to write that test? 
well, you can't have a valid username and password or a valid email and password unless you have a user that has that email address and password. So you need to somehow create a user record. You can do that manually. You can like at the top of your spec file, you can do like user.create email colon some email that you make up ron at example.com password ron is cool and then you have your user and that works but it gets a little bit tedious after a while because like let's imagine there's another test where instead of just needing one user i need like five users and then do i want to like use my limited brain power to come up with a bunch of fake email addresses and passwords for all these different users, that seems really wasteful. So I need a better way of coming up with test data. There's two ways to do this. And, and guys, feel free to jump in at any point if, if you have comments. But the two popular ways of, of generating test data for tests are you can use fixtures or you can use factories. So I'll explain fixtures first. Fixtures are basically when you have, uh, the concept is the same and you could theoretically use any like file format to achieve it. But what I've seen is like YAML files where you say, I have a user and then underneath that, I would say, I would put again, like some arbitrary email address, password, blah, blah, blah. Whatever this data is that I want to exist, I would type it all out in this YAML file. The the drawback to that for me is that the setup is too distant from the usage. Because imagine, go back to thinking about that, that sign-in test and I say, fill in the email field with ron at example.com. When you look at that test, you don't have any context to tell you, well, where did ron at example.com come from? Why is there a user called Ron at example.com? Is there a user called Ron at example.com? And I have to know to go into the fixture file and find Ron at example.com. And only if I know that's there, can I make the connection between the test and the setup. So the other way of doing it, and this is how I do it most of the time, is to use factories. With factories, you could, again, just like, just like with fixtures, this could be achieved any way because the concept is, is still the same. But with the most popular tool for this factory bot, you define a factory for a certain model. So like I'll have a, a user factory definition in this example where I say, give my user an email address and then I'll... I'll specify, I can either hard code something, like I could choose just to put ron at example.com in my user factory, then every single user I'll ever generate will get ron at example.com as its email. Or I could say like ron and then a random number at example.com so that I can at least have unique email addresses. In any case, I define my user factory and then in my test, I will say, User equals, if I'm using factory bot, user equals factory bot.create user. Then in the place that I make use of that user, when I fill in that email field, I'll only say user.email. 
So now I no longer have to care about those details. I don't have to see what the user's actual email address is. And those details are abstracted away, which I think they should be abstracted away because at that level, you shouldn't have to care about what those things are. Right. Yeah, totally agree. Except for the, with the password, I think everyone should use Ron in school as their password. But yeah, definitely <laughs> having factories. It cleans, it cleans everything up, makes it less tedious if you have to make changes. I particularly like the power of factories that you can have like factories. I don't know if I'm getting the terminology right, but like factories within factories, or you could just pass other arguments to the factory to create different versions of the resource that you want, which comes in super handy. I work for an insurance company. And so being able to have a factory create policies in various states is, is great for testing instead of having to set it all up, you know, every time. Yeah. One thing, I have two things real quick. One thing is that I have noticed with fixtures that they can quickly get out of hand, especially the more fixtures you create. And then, you know, if you change a fixture, all of a sudden you have tests failing across your application. And that's just a major pain. The other thing is when you say factories, I think most people, if you talk about factories test in testing, they think factory bot, but factories are like a, a method pattern, correct? When you say factories, you're not, it doesn't have to be with factory bot. You could implement your own factory testing tool, correct? Yeah. And in fact, I have, I've created my own custom factories for the purpose of, of there are things that factory bot isn't really a good fit for, but I still need test data for those things. So I've created my own factories. What, what are those types of things that factory bot specifically isn't great at? Oh, let me see if I can think of what an example is. In the application I'm working on, it's an application for a medical clinic. And we have this one area of the application without going into all the details. When a patient comes in for a visit, we keep track of information for that patient in the form of modules. So we have like an intake module, something called an OCT module, all these different modules. And we have maybe like 15 possible different modules and each individual patient might only get three to five of those for a particular visit, but you, you add only the modules you need for that visit so you can make notes on here's how the patient is doing in this particular area, blah, blah, blah. And so I need to write tests for all these different kinds of modules and they have a whole bunch of different attributes. They're more similar than different. But these objects are not very normal. They don't really fit the pattern of, of just these normal database records of everything else. And so the factories are, they have really special needs. And I've found that I, by writing a custom method that deals with those, it's easier. I don't think I did a great job of explaining exactly why those factories are necessary. But in, in very rare cases, like just to give a scale of it, I have about a hundred different models in my application. And I think I've written two custom factories because two of my hundred models are just like kind of weird. Gotcha. So we talked about fixtures and factories. I think the only one that I've also seen used and the one that I've used a lot at my last job was called, now I completely forgot the name of it, but it was, it was like fabricate, fabricator. 
fabrication, something like that. Mm, yeah, I've heard of that one. I think it's kind of it's kind of a similar idea where you there are objects that you can create. Yeah, it's called a uh, the fabrication gem, and it fabricators. Yeah, so you would, it's kind of the same idea. I think where you have an object where you do fabricator colon person do, and then you can put your kind of whatever attributes you need, and you can call into other fabricators as needed. Yeah. Yeah. And you're totally right that the factory pattern is not even a testing specific thing. It's just a design pattern. And sometimes the factory pattern comes in handy just in application code, not only in test code. It just so happens that the factory pattern is particularly useful in the area of testing. Cool. So that's how we get our data. So in going back to our login form, we're using Capybara to find the attributes on the page. And then we're using something like FactoryBot or Fixtures to have data there that we can correctly enter so that we're not trying to enter a non-existent user unless you're trying to, you know, Tessica create. Hey, do you want to start your own podcast? Head over to Transistor and use my coupon, transistor.fm slash Justin you'll get 15% off your first year of podcast hosting. Flow, but that's, you know, another story. Yeah. All right. So what other tools do we have? Well, I'll, I'll mention one more tool. And because a lot of the other tools are a little bit peripheral or you might not get into them until you've, you've encountered the need for them. But I'll mention Faker. So a minute ago, I mentioned how you might define your user factory by like, Ron, and then a random number at example.com. Well, that's a little bit tedious and it gets a little bit repetitive because you'll have pretty much for all of your factory definitions, you'll want certain values to be unique because you can't have two of the same thing. So that's where Faker can help because the people who wrote Faker were aware that like you're going to need things like email addresses quite frequently. There is, for example, a you can do Faker colon, colon, internet dot email. And it will give you a random fake email address. And so instead of putting Ron random number at example.com in my test definition, I'll just put faker internet dot email. And that takes care of that. So faker is a, is a tool that's like pretty small in scope, but super useful. Yeah. I've used faker for lots of things, but yeah, it's a great tool if you need it. But I would just comment that you don't always need to grab it. And I think sometimes, in my opinion, at least, you know, it is another dependency and you don't always need it. I think sometimes we reach to it a little for for it a little quickly. You don't reach for it until it hurts because, Mm -hmm. because um, also like if you wait until you experience the pain before you go for the solution, then you have a better understanding of why the solution is helpful. Yeah. Well said. Okay. So those, I think, are all the tools that I want to bring up because I mentioned, like, for example, VCR in the beginning, and those are a good thing to be aware of the existence of, but um, talking about how to use those would be like out of the scope of this conversation, probably. I will mention the kinds of tests that I tend to write when I use Capybara. So a lot of a programmer's life is just building CRUD operations. And so something that's nice, you know, everything we build with CRUD operations is a little bit different, but it's still all just CRUD a lot of the time. 
And so luckily, the tests that we write for those CRUD features can be pretty formulaic. So here's the tests that I always write. I always write three certain system specs. One for the creation of a valid record. One for an attempt to create an invalid record. And then a third one to update a record in a valid manner. And I found that if I only write those three tests that cover any particular CRUD interface that I build, that gets me a really long way. And so if I choose to take a really unsophisticated approach and only ever write those three tests, that's still like so much better than nothing because that gets you quite a long ways. Do you guys have any kind of like formula or approach that you tend to take when you're, when you're writing a feature as it pertains to system specs or system tests? My approach to it is I usually try to write as few as possible, meaning I try to cover as many scenarios or cases with each test. And not to say that I just have, you know, a ton of asserts in, in one test, but to go about writing the flow in a way that I, you know, you know, as many things can be covered in that one test as, as possible. I've never really sat down and done like what you've said to say, hey, you know, if I always do these three tests, then I'm covered. And I think that's uh, really interesting, actually, because, yeah, I agree. If you do have, you know, a valid creation, invalid attempt, and then update, you, you are really, you know, most of the way there, especially if your resource doesn't use all the CRUD operations, right? So, yeah, I think that's, I think that's pretty interesting. And I think I will probably borrow that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, again, an unsophisticated, almost dumb approach, but it, it's like a pretty decent safety net because those tests are pretty easy to write, especially if you make a habit of writing those same tests over and over again. And it prevents, it prevents those features from just completely being broken. Like if I write a test that just says, if I, here's, here's how dumb my update tests are. I create the record with FactoryBot, visit the page, and then click the update button. I don't even check to make sure that like anything else happens. I just click the update button. And if there's any kind of like raw error that happens, then that test will fail. But there really doesn't need to be much there. And I found that those tests do break once in a while, which shows that they're valuable. So yeah, I, I, I really like that approach. I want to touch on something that you said, Ron, which is that you said, I think, I think you said that you try to write relatively few system specs or system tests. And I suspect that your reasoning for that is because system specs are expensive to write and expensive to run. So yeah. like, they take a long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you guys and, and maybe the listeners have seen this Martin Fowler testing pyramid thing where at the base is unit tests, which are cheaper to write and cheaper to run. And then at the top of the pyramid are, are integration tests, which are expensive to write and expensive to run. And I, I follow that methodology myself. Like I, 
I have relatively few system specs and relatively many fine grain model specs for that same reason. Yeah, I think that makes sense. You know, typically you have one to cover the happy path and then, you know, you may have some that if you know there are edge cases that you want to cover, all right. But yeah, and have everything else as far as like fine grain business logic be handled by by, by your cheaper tests. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'll go back to my my formula of like, I'll do one system spec that fills out the form validly, one system spec that fills out the form invalidly. I'm not going to write a system spec for every single possible way the form could be invalid. For that, I'll drop down to the model level and I will write I will write all those tests there and I will cover every possible way that model could be invalid, but I don't need to do that at the system level cuz whatever whatever validation errors might be present, those are all going to come out the same way in the UI in the little red box or whatever. So I don't need to test that part over and over. That can be done at the model level just fine. Yeah. One thing I did want to mention, which I don't know if you have any advice on or if there's any tools to help with this, but sometimes trying to actually grab the correct element in the Cavibara test is pretty difficult. And one thing I basically refuse to do, which because I, I just abhor the idea, is like adding something to the HTML or to the mark the markup specifically so that it makes it easier for Capybara to find it. Like to me, that is just a sin, but I mean, maybe not to other people. No, I agree. I, I don't like to do it and it feels sinful when I do do it. It's, so I, I generally have a belief that you shouldn't make changes to your application code just to satisfy the tests. And that's a different thing from like, you know, it's like well known that your tests will change the structure of your application for the better because things that are easier to test tend to also be easier to understand because they will be more loosely coupled and all that. But to add like extra configuration or something like that to your application or like adding elements to the page just so that a test can, can find it, I tend to avoid that if I can. Having said that, sometimes doing that is just the least worst option and so if I have to like add an extra class to something in order to be able to grab onto it, I will, but I won't feel good about it. Yeah. In the markup, I don't care for it, but I will do it if necessary. But on, you know, in my models or some, you know, my business logic, I really don't like say, for instance, having to add a public method to a model just because I need it to test. You know, that feels like, that's like a smell to me and makes me feel like I've done everything wrong and we need to refactor. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I feel the same way. All right. So we've got our tooling. I think the next thing we wanted to talk about is what kinds of tests to write and what kinds to skip. And I'm particularly interested in this one because I have caught myself on a few occasions, basically what Sandy Metz refers to as based testing Rails. Like I don't need to test that that Rails works. Like Rail, we know Rails works. Rails has its own tests. You shouldn't really, you shouldn't be testing that Rails itself works. But sometimes those are very easy tests to write, and I 
somehow I get trapped in the idea that you know having writing a lot of tests means that your application is well tested, but in actuality, that's that's not the case. So, what what kind of tests should you be writing, and what kind what kinds can you skip, or maybe should you skip? Yeah. So what you said, Andrew, brings up one of my favorite rants. And I wrote a blog post about this. I think it's called Examples of Pointless Types of Tests in RSpec. So here's, here's a few examples of kinds of tests that aren't very valuable to write. So testing for the presence of associations. Like I've seen people writing tests for um, assert that this model has a has many association with this other model. Well, that doesn't accomplish anything really because the has many is just a means to an end. It's more valuable to say, what does this has many relationship enable? What behavior does this relationship enable? And then let's test that behavior. Because if you have a test for the behavior that the association enables, then if the behavior, sorry, if the association somehow gets deleted, then that test that tests the behavior will fail anyway. And so if you also had a test that tested for nothing but the presence of that association, the test would be redundant to the one that tests the behavior because it's going to fail anyway. So that's one kind of pointless test. Another is tests that just test for the presence of a method. Same exact principle with all these, like just test what the method does. And if you test for the behavior of the method, again, if somehow the method gets deleted, then that test for the behavior is going to fail anyway. So that test that only checks for the presence would be, would be redundant. And I have several others on there, but I don't know if it's going to be productive to go through all of them. Any comments on, on that from you guys? Like, have you seen any kind of tests that you find to be pointless? Yeah, kind of along the same lines of, you know, just testing the behavior. You know, I've come across where, you know, people are are trying to test like say private methods on a model and in in my my opinion i feel well those private methods are being used by public methods right so if you've written your you know your model in such a way that it can be easily tested through the public interface i feel that that's then then testing you know private methods is unnecessary right because if you test the behavior of the public method, it should ins- like ensure that you know every private method that it uses is doing what it's supposed to. That's another smell, I guess, that when I see you know you sending uh, a message to a model for a, a private method, I'm like, eh, maybe there's a better way, or maybe we don't need to have this test in the first place. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's worth bringing up, like, why do we even have private methods in the first place? And the reason private methods are valuable is because if we have a method that's private, we can be confident that that private method isn't being called by any outside clients. So we can refactor those private methods or change their names or or do anything we want to do because we know that nothing outside of that class is calling it. If we write a test that somehow like hacks its way into that private method by calling dot send or something, then we lose that benefit. We no longer can be confident that we can refactor those private methods because let's say all you do is change a private methods name 
everything still works, but now your test will fail. And so that's, that's not how that's supposed to be. And I totally agree with, with the other thing you said, which is that the way to test private methods is to test them through the public methods that use the private methods. Because that's the exact same way your application is using those private methods. And so to test the private methods via the, the same ways that the application is using those private methods seems to me to make a lot of sense. So it's funny this got brought up because I saw something around this earlier and I don't want to call anyone out and name names, but they said a way you could test your private methods and they posted a screenshot and it says private unless with an environment variable called testing. Oh, yeah. So basically the method is private unless you're testing and then you can access it through the public API. And that to me seemed fishy to say the least. Yeah, I, I didn't really like it either. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm sure there are reasons for that. I just can't think of any right now. Why? Uh, yeah, I don't. I'm not sure why you would need to do that. But I mean, you may be in a, a, a situation where you know the project that you're on is. I mean, it's written right, uh, and and refactoring the model in a way that makes it easy to test whatever you feel you need to test might, you know, might be a no-go. <laughs> you might not be able to do that. That might not be an option. So, and I, and I guess that's the, the beauty of Ruby, right? That in those times where we need to do something that may be a little bit nasty, we can go ahead and, and do that and, you know, continue to make money. But yeah, it just, uh, to me that, is a is another smell like hey I need to take a step back because yeah. even if I make it work now I feel like that is probably a sign that something is going to come back and bite me later on. Yeah, and the other thing I'll add to that is like if if the structure of your code is creating pressure that makes you want to write a test for a private method, then maybe that's an indication that there's an issue with the structure of your code that needs fixing. Yeah. So I have a specific question on something you should test. And admittedly, this is for selfish reasons because I don't know at what point I started doing this, but I caught myself doing it probably more than I ought to. And that is testing validations. So at CodeFund, we have, I mean, we make heavy use of validations in our models. And at some point I caught myself, and I think this is a leftover testing pattern from my previous job, but I was writing a lot of tests around those validations. And I am curious as to what y'all's thoughts around that, because when I took a step back, I was like, wait, this is kind of testing rails. And like, do I really need to be testing this? And I am, but at the same time, I want to make sure that, you know, if this happens, that it's going to, you know, like it's not going to allow certain things, but I don't know. Is that testing Rails? Is that a necessary test? Or is that something that it c- doesn't need to be tested? I don't think it's testing Rails. And, and here's why. So a lot of people don't like Shuda matchers. And Shuda is a tool that like allows you to write certain tests in a more concise way. For example, the presence of an association. A lot of people don't like Shuda matchers because they, they say correctly that it helps you write tests that are just pointless. But a lot of people conflate using should matchers for, for things like testing associations 
and using should have matchers to test for validations. But there's a subtle but super important difference. Associations aren't behavior. Associations enable behavior. Validations are behavior. And so as opposed to being a means to an end, validations are the end in themselves. So I write tests for validations. I don't, I don't think that they are like the most valuable tests that I write, but the validation tests are so inexpensive to write that it seems worth it to me to, to take the two seconds to do it because they are a tiny bit helpful. They're only a tiny bit helpful, but they're helpful enough that the work is worth it. Yeah. I guess the other reason I started writing them was I wanted to make sure that if if it's if the validation is changed, then it's a very you know explicit thing because then you're going to have to go change the test. And I just want to make sure that you know you're very aware that by changing this validation, you're changing that behavior. So, well, that's good. That gives me some validation. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> yeah. There we go. So, anything else on what kinds of tests to write and which to skip? Yeah. One thing I want to mention is like, okay, so there's all these different kinds, which I've mentioned at the top of the show a little bit, all different kinds of R-spec tests you can write, system specs, model specs, view specs, routing specs, blah, blah, blah. Here's what I write and I don't write. I basically write two kinds of tests. I write system specs, which we've talked about, and I write model specs. I don't tend to write a lot of view specs, routing specs, or request specs, or anything else. I've never ever written a view spec, routing specs, and I don't think I've written a routing spec ever also. I have written some request specs, and and we can get into that because that is a little bit important. But the vast majority of the tests that I write are either system specs or model specs. And the reason that I pick those two and ignore everything else is this. System specs show me that my entire application works together. If I pull up a browser, type things in, click on stuff, it shows me that everything works together. That seems important because if I only test my models and skip system specs, because I know some people deliberately just skip system specs altogether because they don't think they're valuable. And I, I think that way of looking at it is just incorrect because it's entirely possible to have a fully passing model test suite, but have your UI be broken. And so it it still doesn't work even though your test suite passes. So I think you need those system specs for that reason. And then I write a lot of model specs because that's where the vast majority of my behavior is. Request specs are the kind of specs that target your controllers. I don't tend to write very many of those because I try really hard to not have my controllers actually do anything. The vast majority of my controllers just say some model, uh, some value equals some model dot something or other, and that's all. I try to push all that behavior down into the models. So if I find myself writing a lot of request specs, that would be a sign that my controllers are doing too much stuff. And then like view specs... That stuff's covered by my system specs already. So writing those view specs would be redundant. And then same thing with routing specs. Like why would I make sure, why would I write a test just for the routing spec to make sure that my like 
user sign-in route works, and then also have a system spec that visits that same route and actually uses it. If I have a test that actually uses the route, I don't need another test that addresses that route directly because, again, that would be redundant. Yeah, I, I agree. And I thought I was just being lazy, but it makes me feel better that you're of the same mind. Well, that- the best is when you can find an intellectual justification for the laziness that you already have. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I feel like system specs cover views or at least the, uh, the important parts of the views, which to me, if, you know, you know, if a part of a view that is not critical to the application making money, you know, changes for some reason, I'm not really too worried about that. So yeah, your system specs cover your view. The only time that I really write request specs is when it's a, if it's, it's like an API endpoint, like the controller is just an exposed uh, API endpoint, then I'll tend to write them. But even then they're a little, they're not very heavy because like you say, most of the time in the controller, you're just trying to shell off the heavy lifting to another object. So yeah, yeah. And that's a great point, which people ask about a lot. When I say that I mostly only write model specs and system specs, sometimes people ask me, well, what if my application is an API only application? Well, in that case, I can't write system specs because there's no browser to be spun up. So I'll write model specs and request specs because those request specs are at the very end of, of what my application touches. So we're getting a little close on time. Do you want to talk about TDD real quick? Sure. So one, one like maybe last thing I'll say about like what kinds of tests to write and what to skip. It might sound like I'm skipping a lot. Even though I'm skipping a lot of kinds of tests, I still write tests for just about everything. On my main application that I work on at work, it has 97% test coverage last time I checked. So that's still close to 100% test coverage. Just because I'm skipping all those kinds of tests doesn't mean there's stuff that not, that's not tested. I just think these other kinds of tests are like crazy and they're redundant. So I, I don't write those. TDD versus not TDD. People who are starting with learning testing sometimes feel like they are doing it wrong if they're not practicing TDD right from the beginning, which again, I, I want to invite people to separate the idea of doing good work versus learning how to do good work. Just because it's not like going on a diet or something where you say, okay, starting June 1st, I'm only going to TDD, no more not doing TDD. It takes a long time to like learn how to do it. And it's completely 100% okay to not do TDD most of the time when you're just learning how to do it. So for myself, I don't practice TDD 100% of the time or even close. It depends on the kind of test I'm writing. So for fine-grained model specs where the behavior I'm after is really clear-cut and I know exactly what I want to do, those times I will often TDD. Like, let's say I'm writing a method that will format a phone number. I will write a failing test that says, when I put in 616-856-8075, call for a good time. Without any, without any punctuation or anything in there, I'll assert that I get 
left parentheses, 616, right parentheses, blah, 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 a properly formatted phone number. I'll write that test. I will let that test fail. Then I'll write the code to make that pass. That is relatively easy to do because it's super clear what I'm after. And then after I write that test, I can write another one that says, oh, I don't know, when I, when I type in, when I give it ASDF, it just gives me, maybe it gives me an error or something. And I go through all the cases, I enumerate all the possible inputs and show it the expected outputs that I get. That's straightforward. I can do that. I like to do that. It's good. That's not the way coding always is, though. Sometimes I'm creating a brand new feature and I don't even know exactly what this feature is going to look like or even really what it's going to do. And so those are the times I don't do TDD. I think a lot of people think, and for a long time myself, I thought that when I'm coding, I need to always be being productive. And like the reason to write code is to end up with an asset that we commit to, to get and like we, we keep that code. But that's really not a totally great way to look at it all the time. Nowadays, I think of it differently. Code is not just a tool to produce work. Tool is a thinking medium. And so if I need to write a feature and I don't know exactly how it's going to go, I give myself permission to do a spike and to go off and explore and, and flail around and try different things. And it would be really silly for me to like write a failing test before I embark on this journey of exploration because I don't even know what I'm trying to do. So first, I'm going to go and, and do that spike. And in fact, like TDD books will, will talk about this, how when you're doing a spike, it's, you're, you're not trying to do testing when you're doing that. But I'll give myself permission not to write any tests at all and just go mess around and figure out what I'm doing then I'll come back and I'll do one of two things. Either I'll like have a firm enough idea at that point that I can write some failing tests and then I'll write the code that makes those tests pass. Or perhaps in my exploration, I will have actually created some functionality that I do in fact want to keep because I'm not so dogmatic that I think a spike needs to be completely blown away when I'm done with it and I need to start from scratch. So sometimes I'll, I'll keep what I've created and I'll put tests on, on that feature that I've built afterward. So I maybe do like 60 or 80% TDD and 20 to 40% not. That is generally my view of it as well. And Ron and I, I currently do, and Ron has in the past worked with Nate Hopkins, who is usually on the show, but couldn't make it. And his general idea is that if you TDD things from the beginning in every case, sometimes it can limit the creativity and the, the solutions, like the elegance of a solution that you may be able to find if you don't. I would agree. Right. Yeah. Like, like you said, you know, if it's something straightforward and you know, this is what I need to do, then yeah, TDD is great. But when you're trying to figure out a solution for something that's not straightforward, yeah, having to, you know, always write tests for everything you think of, like, oh, well, maybe I'll try it this way. Wait, let me write a test for it first. Okay, it didn't work out that way. Let me try it this way. Let me write a test for it first. Personally, I find that that I don't really care for for that. And so, yeah, be having the freedom to just, 
you know, uh, let me let me see what shakes out seems to be, uh, at least in my experience, the way to go, the way that's always worked out for me. And then, like you said, go back, write some tests, whether you, you know, whether you blow it away or not. If I keep if I end up keeping it, uh, at least, you know, comment out the the bits so that I can get failing tests to make sure that the tests that I'm writing now after the fact are actually testing what I, what I hope they're testing, right? Because you can get in, you, you know, you can fall into that trap too, where I have my code written. And then after the fact, I go back and write some tests, but my tests aren't actually testing what I thought they were testing. That's such a great point. It's super important not to fool yourself into thinking that your tests are passing because your code works rather than because you wrote the test wrong. Because I still, even after, I don't know, I've been writing code with tests for almost 10 years now. And even at this point, I still a surprising amount of time write a test that will give me a false positive. And so it's super important to, to check so that you know, like you said, that your test is testing what you think it is. Well, I think we've hit our time limit Jason, thanks so much for coming on. I think this was a really good discussion. I'm excited to share it with the listeners. Where can uh, people find you online? Codewithjason.com is where I do all my blogging and that's kind of the central hub where you can find everything else. I do have what I call a free Ruby testing micro course that you can go and grab at codewithjason.com. That's, that takes the form of there's like a tutorial and there's videos you can, you can watch too on, on YouTube. And then on Twitter, I'm Jason Sweat, J-A-S-O-N-S-W-E-T-T. Perfect. And we will have links to that in the show notes. Thanks again for joining us today. And for the listeners, we will catch you back next week. Bye. See ya. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.